0: This is The Deal with Nisim Black.
1: Hey, what's going on, amazing people? This is Nisim Black, and I just wanted to make a disclaimer because this one may it a little hot. I have over the years been very, very adamant about building bridges and talking with many different people, different backgrounds, different faiths, and I think these things are absolutely important. Um, over the last few years, there have been major attempts from uh, Christian missionaries to come into Israel and to other communities all around the United States, and it may be happening even in other places. Many stories ought to break soon to try to convert Jews to Christianity. This has led to a amazing amount of work and effort from Outreach Judaism, Jews for Judaism, um, and other organizations to fight back and combat this. One of the ones leading on the front line is Rabbi Tovi Singer. Anybody that's familiar with his work obviously knows that it can get a little hot. So I just wanted to make this disclaimer for any of my Christian audience who are there, I didn't do this in order to offend you. Um, if you are watching and you have a tendency to be offended, you may not want to watch this episode because I'll be very honest. It can get very, very offensive, although that's not the goal. The goal was to actually open up dialogue and get people to actually think about the things that we share and the things that we don't share. And I want, if anybody can, just listen to the end, to listen to the end all the way through this conversation, because I think we hit a lot of very, very good points are going to be valuable for you the listener again my love to all wasn't the goal to be offensive but this one may get a little hot and with that my guest today is rabbi tovia singer was the founder of outreach Judaism an organization who makes it its effort to go and to fight back the missionary effort to get Jews to convert out of the Jewish faith into Christianity. He is known for giving lectures all over the world. He's the author of a two-volume book called Let's Get Biblical, which is available for everyone to read and really dig deep into the scriptures. And I'm so honored and so blessed to have Rabbi who I'm a big fan of on my podcast today. Rabbi, thank you so much for joining me on the deal today. It is like a long time coming, long time coming and I've been looking and anticipating this day for a very very long time so i appreciate having you on
2: it's great having me on and <laughs> it's a big zuchus i don't know you must have given a lot of tzedakah it's a big zuchus <laughs> and i can't get over it no one can get over it and uh no it's a joy to join you Nisim. thank you for having me on <laughs> thank you so <laughs> i
1: want you to i want you to start because you know all together we got a lot of delicate situations that we need to discuss right so I want you to start by giving um, you know a shortened version, I guess maybe if you will, of your story and how you got into outreach Judaism, like how this even came
2: about so I've been doing this meaning I've been helping Jews in the church return back to the truth and the beauty of the Jewish faith for more than forty years how uh, because I encountered missionaries standing on the street corners of New York, passing out tracks, telling my people why believing in Jesus, Yeshua, is the most Jewish thing you can do. I mean, I was born 15 years after the Holocaust. I grew up where people were walking around with numbers on their arms. I knew what, what Christian countries did to my family. And the notion that here are people who are on the streets of New York the largest center of Jewish life in America, telling them they should convert to Christianity. Of course, they don't use those terms. I was just shocked. I was appalled. And I began to argue them. I think I was 16 years old. And wow. when you argue with these street missionaries, it's not the most satisfying experience in the world. It was a conversation that was going absolutely nowhere very quickly. An elderly man observed this spectacle on the corner of 47th Street and 5th Avenue, right by Diamond District. It was a Saturday night. He pulled me away from them and he said, Don't argue with them. You don't know enough. You don't know enough. If you want to do something to fight missionaries, why don't you follow them around? And as they give out papers, put up posters, you pull them down. I was just <laughs> appalled by that. Like, <laughs> I went to yeshiva. I went to an Yeshiva. yeshiva. Went to a good yeshiva. I went to the Mir yeshiva. All right. So what do you mean? So like, what do you mean? I don't know enough. Right. Like, I went to yeshiva. I went to yeshiva that was so famous they named a space station after it, the Mir right. yeshiva. I mean, it was like <laughs> I don't know enough. Like these, I wasn't sure if I was. You know, the, these people were Jewish. Anyway, I went to Israel for the first time in my life. Old city of Jerusalem. My uncle lived there. And he showed me that he had a Christian Bible from a guest at his home the previous Shabbat, a King James Bible, red letter edition. And I told him, he was very proud of this. My Uncle Mayor of Blessed Memory, he held it up. He couldn't get over it. He had a King James Bible, like he had the manual from the other team, you know. And <laughs> give a look at what I got here. And I told him that's what I wanted to read. And I began to study it. And I was really shocked. I was mammish appalled. 34 misgav ladach, I sat on the stoop, and I was blown away as I read the Christian Bible, what it had to say about the Jews, how it mischaracterized the Jewish scriptures, and I knew something had to be done, and it wasn't that long ago. I'm still, I'm a young kid, and I was at the Western Wall, first time in Israel, praying at such a holy place. I was in another world. You know what it's like. Listen, and when you stand in the davening in Brennan, in the middle of my prayers, I feel a tap on my shoulder. I'm in the middle of davening and someone's tapping me. Who's tapping in the middle? I turn around, there's a fellow standing there with a, a yarmulke, you know the cardboard ones? And he, and, he, and he asks me, Excuse me, do you know the Lord? Like, what, what, what am I doing here? I'm playing handball? What am I doing here? <laughs> like, what, what, am I, what are we doing here exactly? What is so I, I said, of course I do. I went to yeshiva. So he had this very curious look. He said, you mean you know who Yeshua is? I said, of course I do. I went to yeshiva with him. He was in my class. I was thinking Yeshua <laughs> Jacobowitz. I had no I had no this is just clueless to me. But we right there began to unpack this cross-cultural communications problem. We both studied <laughs> together in Israel. We returned back to New York area where we were both from at the time. And wow. this young man, yeah, this young fellow did Shuva. He's a rough today in the United States. So That blew my mind away. It blew my mind away that a Jew could become a Christian, and it blew my mind away that they really are, the vast majority of them are very sincere people. They really care. They don't see themselves as traitors against their people. No one taught them. They don't know. So I've devoted my life to this. That's really where it all began.
1: That's amazing. So for people like me who come from that world, A lot of these things, they get very delicate for me because, like, for instance, my father is a a pastor, right? We never have this conversation. We never really need to in in the terms of because I love my father. He loves me. He's very happy of what I'm doing in the world. And I'm happy to see him. You know, this was a person who changed his life. And this is going to set up my next question. Like, my father at one point was a serious drug dealer serious drug dealer. He had houses that he he was operating, the whole situation. He was he was very, very involved. You can imagine all the other things that come with that type of life and the street life. And for him to turn around completely change his life later on in his years and to become You know, now today he's a pastor, he's a theologian, he's a professor at a Bible college, you know, even apologetics is, uh, he spent years uh, teaching and different things like that. He has an affinity for Judaism. He happens to be very, very pro-Israel. So, even even with all that said, we know there's hot topics. We just never touch those things. So... The question is, is people would say a lot of times they use this proof. I also had a very, you know, crazy upbringing, maybe even as a result of the way that he lived early on and what what happened to me. So now I've also changed my life. And eventually at the end of of my chapter, I came to Judaism. It wasn't directly, obviously, you know, through Christianity first, but. What do you say to people that see something so striking? Because a lot of people, when they come to Christianity, it's because they had some major hardships. And so when people see that people make a major dramatic change, they go, oh, well, then Jesus must be real. This must be true. This must be, uh, you know, what, what is your answer for something like that?
2: One of the things that a person observes very quickly is that people of every faith, Christianity, Islam... Judaism, people become Hare Krishnas. They all describe being at a very low point and their religious. Conversion. Muhammad Ali. He became uh, transformed his life. He was uh, went from Cassius Clay to Muhammad Ali, and a a completely different person. All these religions are can't all be true. That means they have mutually exclusive claims. But there's something very striking about the person who gives the testimonial of why he's accepted Jesus in his life, and and you've heard this, Nisim, in your life, and the, the testimonial will. Go something like this, okay? It goes like—you don't understand. I was a heroin addict. I had needle marks up and down my arm. I was laying on the streets of New York and Seattle. I was drunk. I was a prostitute. I was laying in my own vomit, and that's when I found Jesus. That's i right, right. I'm not, I just want I'm for, the, I'm for, the, for the so people, right, for the people who are, <laughs> who are like from Borough Park who don't nothing for right now, just take my word for it, that's the way the testimonials go. Now, conversely, there's something very striking. If you meet people who are in the conversion programs to Judaism here in Israel— throughout the Holy Land, there are conversion programs. The vast majority of them are former evangelical Christians. There are some former Hindus, Buddhists, but the vast majority of them are devout Christians. And yes then tell me, give me your testimony of why you want to, you converting to Judaism. So this is not what you're likely to hear. Oh, you want to know? Let me tell you what happened. I was drunk. I was high. I was laying on the streets of midtown Manhattan in my own vomit. I had a marijuana in one hand and cocaine in my other nose. And then, and right there laying on the streets in the middle of the night, I found Moses. This is a, (laughs) (laughs) this is a very, very unlikely event. Now, why is that? So this is so striking. And if I was sitting in a room full of Everyone will go, eh, the rabbi's on you. So there's something very striking about that. It's very clear that the people who are becoming fundamentalist Christians are doing it out of a low point of their lives, whereas people who are converting to Judaism are doing it out of a place of strength. They're not saying, I came to Moses because I was on drugs. No, I studied the Scripture. I was at the high point. And the reason is the following. All transformations— But people struggle with self-esteem. That's the bottom of it all. No doubt about it. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? We see our worst critic very frequently. But what Christianity does is it affirms our low self-esteem. It says... You know why you think you're a sinner? You know why you think you're hopeless? Because you are hopeless. You were born in sin. You were conceived in iniquity. You are lost. And therefore, Jesus, he is the only person who's perfect. And he is God manifest in the flesh. He happens to be a white guy for some reason with gorgeous hair, <laughs> amazing. Like, he can't have, like, right? No, he can't be a Chinese Jesus or a short, fat, bald Jesus. No, no, no. He's got to be like a guy who looks like he's off of a Vogue magazine cover. Like, if you can invent a religion—by the way, if you're Christian, don't be offended, but it's a little ridiculous that the guy looks like he's from a Macy's catalog. But the point is that—what <laughs> <laughs> am I going to say? I can't be— I made a disclaimer at the beginning that they should know that, you know, we're, go, we're shooting straight. That we're shooting it straight. If you want it straight, what do you want to— So Christianity, then, the teachings of Christianity convey the following message. This is all— over the place. And that is, you are a sinner. You are hopeless. There is nothing you can do. There is no work. There is no initiative that you can advance that can save yourself because you're lost. Why? Because Satan is so powerful because you were born in sin. In fact, the original sin has infected you. There's nothing you can do. If you're listening to my voice right now and you don't know what I'm talking about, that means you have never been to a church in your life. This is every Sunday morning. This is not... This, this, this doesn't just come up in church on Lachbimer. This is every right, single... Right. If these jokes are too cup, no. This is... just this, this is the mainstay. This is all you right. hear no, every, no, 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 every Sunday, every Bible class. You're, so what Christianity does, and this is a very, very successful spin, is it affirms a little self-esteem. It says, you know why you feel ugly? You feel worthless. You feel like a sinner. You feel hopeless. Because you are. And therefore, only Jesus can save you. Are you willing to surrender everything? So this is a very powerful message. It's it's not a ticket to heaven. Judaism, the prophets of Israel of blessed memory, these are the greatest men and women that ever lived, had the very opposite message. You'll never find that kind of message anywhere in the Holy Scriptures. Hebrew Bible It's the opposite. It's seek the Lord when you find him. Call out to him when he's near. If you return to me and I will return to you. In Jeremiah says, unbelievable, in the early chapters, Jeremiah says, even though it's true in Jewish law, if a, a woman is unfaithful to her husband and she's an adulteress and she goes and marries another man, the husband can never take her back. He can't remarry her. He can't say, I forgive you. But Hakosh says, even though that's the case, the Almighty, blessed be His holy name, says, I'll take you back. Return to me. Ah, it's unbelievable. So that's what Judaism does. When I say Judaism, this is the message of the Hebrew prophets. You're not going to find anything like Romans chapter 3 in Tanakh. Nothing. If right. If... if 2 Corinthians 5, 21 was anywhere in Tanakh, we would all be in church right now. The message (laughs) of the prophet, (laughs) the message of the prophets is that you can do it. You are created in the image of God. Hashem loves you and he wants to be close to you. Kiss me with the kisses of thy lips, for thy love is better than wine. That's how the book of Song of Songs begins, written by the great King Solomon. That's so, it is true that in the conversion to any religion is transformative, but it is so striking, it's so transparent, that it's a completely different message and a different way of reaching the neshama. And the one that is transmitted by people like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are the great rabbis of the Jewish people. Judaism is rabbinic Judaism, but Moses is our chief rabbi. (laughs) No doubt about
1: it. So listen, Rabbi, think about this, you know, and I've heard you say this before also, too. What happens is generally when you talk about that contrast of what happens when a person converts to a different religion right? My first religion was Islam. My grandfather was a Sunni Muslim. as was the first religion I knew. I prayed with them five times a day. Later on I had friends that were, uh, you know, a friend in particular was very adamant about me going to the sit hop program, which happened to be at a missionary center, the Union Gospel Mission, which you know, I always say, I, I love that I went through that situation in my life. These were people that really cared about me, took me out of the situation that I was in. But there is something about what happens afterwards. What happens afterwards is when a person becomes very, very seriously about their faith, that they start to look at the, I became a Bible thumper. When you become a Bible thumper, something happens. You start seeing things, you start noticing things, and you start asking a lot of questions. Now, in my teen years, when I became very, very devout Christian, you know, I never got real answers to my questions, never got real answers to my questions. So later on, after I live my life and I find myself at a low point or whatever, and I started praying again, and I'm already on my up. Then I start to think about, you know what? I had a lot of questions when I read the Bible. Let me go get the Bible again. And that's, that's basically what started me on this journey. What you're saying, the contrast of a person who converts either to Christianity or either converts to, to you know other, other religions, but Christianity in particular, because that's the one that you, you, you deal with the most. You see this low point, like you're saying, but the opposite is you hear story after story of I was a pastor and I stood up on a Sunday. I stood up on a Saturday and I said in front of everybody, this is all crap and I'm leaving. I've heard so many stories like that. It's never usually the person that doesn't learn. It's the person that does learn that ends up coming to... To Judaism. A person that learns it more and goes deeper, that's what usually happens. And it has to be an interesting work, even in your work. I, you know, Rabbi Skobak was a big part of my journey years. I know he's one of your colleagues also. And I remember, you know, sitting with him and talking with him one of the years after I had already, you know, left and I was already converted. And he found, and I'm sure you probably find the same thing, what I want to ask you about, is that most of the time he's going out to all these different conferences. I met him at one of the conferences, and what they find is that a whole lot more non Jews are coming out converting to Judaism <laughs> than it are Jews who are actually going and converting into Christianity. So, talk to me about that, like how you've seen this whole thing flip and in that context.
2: This is mind blowing. You know, the, the Novi says, Utsu Asa Vesufer, let them come up with a plan, the enemies of Israel, it will come to Noah. Darbu Dover, let them plot a plot, plot, the law yokum, it will not be established, ki imonu el, because the God of Israel is with you. I'm mm-hmm. going to say this, and it's going to blow you, the viewers, out of the water. Listen like you've never listened in your life. There is probably no organization in the world that's more responsible for the conversion of non-Jews to Judaism than the Messianic movement and Jews for Jesus had these really are the enemies of Klaus Yisrael. Their intention, when the Messianic movement began in 1973, essentially, their intention was to convert the Jews and use indigenous missions, meaning converting Jews in our own culture, using Jewish symbols, icons, say Yeshua, don't say Jesus Christ, don't say come to church, go to a messian. But what happened was it ignited such curiosity among non-Jews who went, wow, this messianic movement seems to be the more authentic expression of Yeshua, I mean, this is probably how Yeshua prayed in Hebrew. He didn't say Jesus Christ. It wasn't James. It was Yaakov. And oh, so what happens is that Messianic congregations are loaded with non-Jews. I know this comes as a huge surprise to the viewers, but... I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cloud, first off, Rabbi. You should know
1: because I came from a Messianic uh, congregation. So wh- wherever it's the closest and the most traditional and more like Orthodox Judaism, there's more non-Jews. Wherever it's more like church on Sunday, you may have more Jews in there. So it's a very interesting <laughs> cloud, but that's... Uh...
2: I used to go to those conferences, those Messianic conferences, and when I saw people walking in the Marriott Hotel at an MJAA conference, Mess-G- Messianic Jewish Alliance, or UMJC, those are the two big ones. There are others. So when I saw people at the UMJC, dressed like this Satmar Hasidim, I definitely knew these people are truck drivers. That means I knew, because, <laughs> and then all you do is, you, like, the guys who are walking around with a shrimal la kapata and everything. They look like they just, I don't know what, they came out of, you know, they came out of Mayor Shorim. These people guarantee you are not Jewish, and they're overcompensating. Conversely, the Jews who convert to Christianity, they're not really interested in the Messianic movement. They didn't convert to Christianity, join the Messianic movement. They're in Southern Baptist churches. They're in the of God, uh, Charismatic churches. So it's all very strange. There are some exceptions, but the vast, vast majority of Messianic congregations, there is uh, Beth Yeshua in Philadelphia, which is big and has a lot of Jews in it. That's a big place. And that's the Chernoff family. That's an all. So they have quite a few Jews in the Philadelphia area. But that's an anomaly. In the vast majority of Messianic congregations— Non Jews. If you want to find the Jews in churches, you'll find them in the, as you said, in the Southern Baptist, Baptist, Missouri Synod, Lutheran churches, Seventh day Advent. They're in the churches. They're not interested in this stuff. So that's exactly the correct case. And what happens is, what happened to you is that people are told, we need to witness to the Jews. Well, what do you have to do? You got to learn Jewish stuff. And then they start watching. YouTube videos of me and others and Michael and so on, and then they're opening up an art scroll and going, gosh, I I don't know how to read Hebrew. And then they're going, wait, one second here. The Jews aren't really necessarily blind. There aren't scales over their eyes. There isn't a veil over their eyes, as Paul insists in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4. There's a reason why Jews don't accept Jesus as the jewish messiah and it's not because we're blinded and because god grafted in the uh, wild branches no and they're pounding doors to say let us in and they're either converting to judaism or becoming b'nai noach all over the world
1: right it's an amazing thing but it's it's that contrast i think you know what you spoke about it before is that when you look at it the jews who end up converting to christianity as you said before, are not generally the learned Jews. They're not getting guys from the mirror, right? right. So right. they're coming from somewhere, but they're not coming from the mirror. You know, when a person goes to Christianity, that's after thoroughly studying and coming over contradiction after contradiction or, or whatever, something's not sitting right for them. And then these are people who know the Bible very well. So it seems to be like there's a, there's a flip around.
2: There is a reason, my friends why uh, there are thousands of Christian schools in America for Christian children, and none of them teach Hebrew to Christian boys and girls. None of them do. Even though Christians believe that the Hebrew Bible was written in Lushna HaKodesh, in the holy tongue, All Christians believe that the Hebrew scriptures are the Word of God. Yet they would rather, in a middle school in Houston and Dallas, they would rather be teaching Latin than biblical Hebrew to kids. Now, it's true that by the time you're 19 and you're going off to college, so sure, you can go to Dallas Theological, to Moody, and then you could take courses in Biblical Hebrew. If you want to become a minister, you have to take a few semesters of Biblical Hebrew. But it's too late, because what you're doing when you're 20 years old and you're a devout Christian is you're learning a little Hebrew, not enough to go through it, and then you're just reading Jesus into everything. An angel Lord, ah, it must be Jesus. Three angels encounter Abraham Genesis chapter 18, ah, it must be the Trinity. So they're reading at that stage in their Christian life, they're then reading, they're reading the Jewish Bible through a Christological filter, a Christological grid, and they're in an enormous amount of trouble. My heart goes out to them because they're reading through a King James and NIV. These are not just Bad translations, these are corrupt translations. They have an intention.
1: It's very clear that when you read these texts and you look at them, they have an intention. The way that they flipped the verses, the way that they're adding things in, you know, even the idea of the Trinity, the, the Father, the Son, all these, that's not an original manuscript, right? So, I, like, there's a lot of these things that, that you've seen take place over the years. You know, over the years, people have asked me, you know, how come none of your family, no other people got interested? What about your friend? Most people are not busy reading the text. I think that that's the problem. Nobody is, nobody's really looking at it or trying to dig in. Or if they are, it's just like you said, they have a filter. The way that they've seen it already, like if you read the book backwards, of course, you're going to see it's already been colored. The whole entire thing's been colored. Everything's there already. So that's the way that you're going to see it. If you read the book the opposite direction, you'll never come to this conclusion. So this has been one of the things that's bothered me the most. And I I want you to help me come to uh, some type of calm about this. I think the biggest issue for me has been the arrogance overall of the church in general. What I mean is, is that if a person took a Tanakh and you put them in the middle of the desert, they never knew anything about it. They would probably not even come to the conclusion of there being a Mashiach, a Messiah. They may know there's some type of Redeemer. Is it God? Is it not? But if a person just read it, you need oral Torah in order to tell you that this is speaking about Mashiach. This is talking about God. Yeah, This is not talking about God. This is talking about Mashiach. And this is talking about, you know, this Redeemer. So the question is, is that after the rabbis have come along... And they've been able to uh, basically make it clear that this is speaking about Mashiach. We understand that there's uh, Mashiach is not just a, a, a situation where we're discussing things about our feelings, how we feel about things. It's a halakhic issue. Who Mashiach is is a halakhic issue. There's a, there's, there's a halakhic issue with who's Mashiach. So that means, let's call halakhah, we we'll call the law of it, rules. That means that there's rules. So if a religion comes along later on, you followed the manuscript to some point. At some point, Judaism was right. At some point, the rabbis were completely 100% right, and this, oh, idea of Mashiach, because else the world wouldn't have an idea of what it is, right? Because we had this from the altar. So then after the, the, the founding of Christianity, the Council of Nice, everything else, the church somehow has this authority to turn its face back to Judaism and say, no, you're wrong, we're right about Mashiach, goes, but, but guys, where'd you get it from? Where'd you get the whole entire, you, you, how can you now take it? And then now we're going to change all the rules. No, it didn't mean this. It meant he's coming two times. Then it meant this. And then I, I want to know your, your answer on this. It seems like it's a very, very arrogant place where we'll sit in, you know, a guy who wants to come in, he comes and learns and everything like that. And the whole thing afterwards, he just wants to become an instructor and change everything.
2: Yeah. So there are hundreds of passages throughout Tanakh that describe the Messianic age. There are hundreds of them. The Messiah, however, as you alluded to, is mentioned very infrequently. In fact, the word Mashiach, that Hebrew word, appears in Tanakh 39 times. And the shocker is, in not one of those passages where that word appears, is it ever referring to the Mashiach? The Mashiach is not called the Mashiach in Tanakh. That's a term we use now. Now, however, the Mashiach is described in Tanakh in very few places. Most people would not even know where to look for it. But you do have in Isaiah chapter 2, this is not a miracle worker. He will judge between the nations and rebuke many peoples. That's it. There's no miracle worker. No born of a a virgin, no dying, no resurrecting, all this. I mean, when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 2 and 3, he says that Jesus died, was killed, and he was crucified and resurrected on the third day, according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture, guess what? There ain't no such Scripture. It doesn't exist. It's a phantom text. Paul is literally inventing this. So what you have in Tanakh is... Very few passages about the Mashiach. It's about how the world will be transformed. And there's nothing about the Mashiach being a miracle worker. It's not to say that he won't do miracles, maybe he will. For Tanakh, this is very unimportant. Second coming, what a wonderful claim the Christianity invented in order to explain away a failed Messiah. I mean, if the Messiah can come twice, then my sister-in-law could be the Messiah. Ah, she didn't do a thing. Ah, second coming. I mean, doesn't anyone get that? I mean, I want to talk to the Christians here for a moment. I mean, there's a reason why you don't belong to the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Okay. I'm just. If you're not a Christian, you can listen in this is not for you. I want to talk to the Christians of Roman. There is a reason why you reject the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because you believe that these iterations of Christianity, and you'd say so-called Christianity, are uh, in fact unsupported by the Bible. You're using critical thinking and saying, no, they're not. it's unbiblical. Well, just use that same sort of critical thinking and go, there is nothing in the Hebrew Bible that says the Messiah is going to go around doing miracles, none of those things. What will happen in the messianic age, is there will be a worldwide knowledge of God. The knowledge of God will cover the world as the water covers the sea. There's nothing about a Messiah being God on the contrary. We're told about Mashiach, I said rarely, but it's there, in Isaiah 11, verses two and three, that He Hashem's spirit will be upon him, and he will fear God, verse three, and he will be filled with the fear of the Lord. I need to tell you something, God fears no one, and God certainly doesn't fear himself, People who are afraid of themselves are put away in mental institutions. So it is so <laughs> clear from Tanakh that Mashiach is not God, but he fears Hashem, and he's like David HaMelech. He's going to bring back the building of the temple, the sacrificial system restored. Read the last nine chapters of the book of Ezekiel. The base HaMikdash is going to be built, the ingathering, the exiles. Today, we're right there. More than half of the Jews in the world live here in Aristotle, live in the Holy Land. That did not exist. That did not happen since the first temple period. Never in the second temple were the majority of the Jews living in Aristotle. Not even close. So these are the kinds of things we're looking for. Now, the church was unhappy with this. And therefore, you're right. The church inserts the doctrine of the Trinity into 1 John 5, 7, and 8, which isn't there. And Christian scholars know that. The word Trinity was invented around the year 200 by a guy named Tertullian from North Africa, from Carthage. He invented it. And then it was hammered out as orthodoxy, as you said, at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And Christians are still fighting over this. Why are they fighting over it if it's so obviously stated in the Christian Bible? So that's the whole deal. The whole deal is Moses is our rabbi. Isaiah is our chief rabbi. Jeremiah is the person we look to. We look to Yechiskil. These books are pregnant with messianic prophecy, but very little about the Messiah. And this bothered the church a lot. Like, what? Like, because when you, for those who've never been to church, I'm not setting up a straw man here. From the moment you walk in to the moment you leave, you're going to hear the word Jesus 500 times. Just Jesus, 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 Jesus. That's how it goes. Be like Jesus, look like Jesus, whatever it is. It's Jesus all over the place. But the problem that the church had to confront is when you go through the Hebrew Bible, like there's no Jesus anywhere. Like wh- where is this? Like it it doesn't comport. So what they have to do is go, ah, when we have an angel of the Lord... That's really talking about Jesus. You know, when you see a, a Malach Hashem that will go before you in the Book of Exodus, oh, that's really Jesus. That's a theophany. A burning bush, that's Jesus. So Jesus is everywhere, but it's not in the plain text. And you're right, they had to alter their own New Testament in order to make it appear as though the Trinity was there and Christians now have come to know them.
1: So here's the question about that. Um, let's go back a little bit about this distrust that Christians have from the Latter-day Saints. It's another thing that always bo- bothered me. And that sort of was my, cross, my crossroads with everything. Was I almost felt like there was no more of a foundation to stand on. Once you study Christian history... And you start to learn about the Council of Nicaea, and I started to go through church fathers. I want to go dig deep. Most Christians will not do that. And won't dig deep. Probably never even heard where I come from, church fathers even. So one of the biggest issues you have is that when it, when you look at you know Orthodox Christianity, there are a lot of things that are very, very obvious, are invented, right? That it's sort of, in a sense, you know, people would say that when when Paul says that I didn't come to you with with fables and and all these different uh, stories and different things like that, or not the traditions of men, that's the whole, that's a very big thing that a lot of Christians talk about. You have a problem when Paul says that, you know, keep to the traditions that I taught you. So in Orthodox Christianity, they are obviously they have a Masora, they have a tradition, that this is the, this is what I was taught. So there's this big argument. Now, most Christians don't believe in the traditions of the Catholic Church. They don't believe in the way that they canonize Scripture. They don't believe in, you know, a lot of the other things, the the worship even of Mary and everything else and statues and everything else. So it's it's a beginning, but it's almost like you start axing at a tree and then you never finish you get to a place where he's like, oh, it's better like that. But you don't finish going through it. It's almost like a stop of like, why did you guys stop? Why did you stop? Because if, if they have to stop at some point because then there's no longer a foundation to stand on. Because the Protestant Christianity and evangelical Christianity as we know it today that, is, that has come from it, the foundation that it has stands on top of the Orthodox Church. So you have a major, major problem because the more and more discovery that's being found over the years of like Messianic messianic Judaism started in its way to convert Jews. Later on, this is birthed into more and people realizing that, oh, these people were actually Jewish. Judaism is it. And then we start to learn that like, you know, one of the biggest things was to me with the Chagim, with the holidays. The holidays, these holidays are not even in the Christian Bible, where they come from. And the more people start hacking, 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 then you start to realize that you don't even have a foundation to stand on. So why do you think people so blindly continue to go with it when they don't even believe in the mother who gave birth to you to some, some degree?
2: You know, there's a joke. Why did God create Mormons so Christians would know how Jews feel? <laughs> <laughs> That's really the bottom line. I mean, the issue is, is that, you know, Christians, evangelical Christians live in two worlds. On one hand, they say, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, which is the foundation of the Reformation. We don't believe in traditions. We, don't, we believe in only what the Bible says. Like, how do you know Matthew wrote Matthew, Luke wrote Luke? I mean, that comes from Irenaeus in the year 180. I mean, there's nothing—Matthew Ma, does not say, you know, you're truly Matthew. And it's very clear in Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, Matthew did not write the book of Matthew. He's writing about Matthew in the third person. Luke, the book of Luke, for those who know, it didn't go to yeshiva. The book of Luke does not end <laughs> sincerely or <laughs> with best wishes for a happy holiday, Luke. It doesn't end that way. <laughs> there's all— Christian traditions, all 2nd century. And prior to Irenaeus, really the earlier church fathers, whether it was Justin and so on, they just referred to these as the apostles and the evangelists. They had no idea. So what happens is that The evangelical lives in two different universes, and they often can't work this through. So on one hand, they only accept the traditions that Paul invented, but that's somehow not held up to Mm. scrutiny. So when Paul takes passages out of context, when he rips Deuteronomy chapter 30 to pieces in Romans chapter 10, so that's okay. When the Torah says, There's an important fundamental principle in Torah that you have to be to animals. When you have an ox that's shredding, you can't put a muzzle on it. Deuteronomy. So Paul says, ah, he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10, he says, do you really think that God cares about oxen? He doesn't care. He's really talking about giving money to missionaries. Like what? (laughs) Where do you go? So like somehow Paul's oral Torah, that's fine. But then They ignore everything else. You know, the Roman Catholics, I I spent a lot of time in the Far East. The Roman Catholics, they got miracles going up and down. Why don't you believe them? I mean, there are people in the Philippines and in Sao Paulo that have pancakes with Mary every Sunday morning. Like, no, (laughs) somehow—so those miracles we don't accept because we only accept the miracles in our iteration of Christianity, which means there are thousands of sects of Christianity. Thousands! You know, the Catholic Church was right in the Council of Trent in the 16th century. It was an anti-Reformation anti-Refo- council, it was the longest ecumenical council of the Catholic Church in history. They said that you Protestants think you're pulling away and you're getting rid of the pope. You're going to have a thousand popes. And they were right. So what happened is, you've got to even be baptized. If you are if you want to go into Church of Christ, you can't get baptized from a Lutheran church. It don't count. So it's not like you're you're like covered in it. So what happens is that Christians only, it's our oral traditions that Matthew wrote. Matthew is our oral tradition that there's a doctrine in Trinity, and it's nowhere to be found in the Christian Bible. No. It's just the opposite. In John chapter 14, Jesus, we are told, says the Father is greater than I am. Whoa, where did that come from? Right? Right. So so what's very clear is that evangelical Christians dismiss the miracles that occur in the Mormon church, dismiss the miracles that that occur in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Orthodox Church. They've got icons in Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox churches that are crying and bleeding. They've got Russian Orthodox churches with Big icons and blood starts coming out of the icon. Well, somehow that you dismiss. But someone who had a cold for two weeks and recovered, aha, this proves Jesus. So when you live in two that I'm not this is what goes on. And then if right, some right. and if everybody prays for something, it's it's such a confirmation bias. When I mean, if somebody's sick, right? So someone's sick. So we're gonna pray over him, right? So he get, someone gets better, right? So you say, ah, this is a miracle, this proves Jesus the Messiah. But when they pray over somebody, and the person died, they don't go, ah, it shows Jesus is not the Messiah. So it's a, it's this biased confirmation, it's eliminating failures that this whole thing is a shell game. It's just dealing from the bottom of the deck. This is three-card Monty. They played that on the streets of Seattle and New York, where a guy stands there with three court cards and pick it, and you, you don't see the slide here. This is theological Sleight of hand. That's what's going on here.
1: Crazy, crazy you said that. So <laughs> and, and your years of doing this, what have you seen as being the most effective method? I mean, there's a lot of other people who probably also want to take this on forehead, who want to be able to bring Yidden back home. They want to bring Jews back to, back to Judaism. And it's a very, very important thing. First thing also, too, I want, to, I want to say, even before I get to that question, some of the most beautiful people that I've met have been Christian people. Loving, caring, take the shirt off the back, And there's a lot of these people, and they're genuine. It's not like they're just like, you know, whatever. Like, I, I, I do work with Christians, and I have a genuine love. And there's a certain level of feeling like, you know, you're on Team God. You know what i Especially with what's going on in the world today. You're on Team God, right? And there's some things where we obviously share. What do you say now, seeing the war on God, right, from the world, and is there any need to make efforts to connect with Christians, or do you have relationships with Christians as well that you, you do work with, or uh, different things like that? That's my that's my question. Is there any room for any of that? That's my question. Any type of connection, working together?
2: So I don't, as you know, I don't need to approach Christians, because I don't know, but it's something in the order of about 20 million people watch me on on YouTube, probably a little (laughs) more than that. So, and you know, I have a fairly large channel. So I'm now at a stage, I mean, I've written books on it. I used to do a lot of public speaking. I still do, but most people don't read thousand page books. I mean, they know, they want to watch it. So today people are watching it. It's really making a difference in their life. When you talk about how to approach a Christian, I feel the same way. And I want to say this, I'm gonna say this straight away. When I was a kid, I didn't like Christians. I didn't care what they believed. I just want to stay clear of them. I grew up, as I said, with, uh, with survivors of the Shoah who somehow managed to survive Hitler's ovens, and Hitler's ovens were only located in Christian countries. There was no, there was no gas chamber in a Buddhist country. I mean, they, right. The Hindus weren't doing this to us. Okay, I mean it's it just, just the way it was. So I never, as a kid, and anyone who grew up in Brooklyn knows this: Jewish kid, Orthodox kid. I never passed by a bunch of. Kids, they were all Christians, Catholic, whatever they were—Italian, Puerto Rican, what the whole, the whole day. I never passed by and they had anything nice to say to me. They always used to say to, they would always say to me that I killed Jesus, and I'd go like I wasn't even enabled at the time. I thought they were crazy, right? For, so I thought I didn't, I really didn't care about them. And what happened? What you're describing is exactly what happened to me. Later on in my twenties, I began to meet Christians, such nice, good people leaving the hood, leaving Brooklyn, leaving this highly gentrified area, and then meeting them and going, wow, these are very, very good people. And what I do when I interact with the Christian is I listen. I think that's the key to be able to interact, is to learn. You know, my rebbe used to say, Hashem, God gave you two ears and one mouth. Try to maintain that ratio. I listen a lot. I I let the Christian explain to me why I should believe in Jesus, and I respond to their point rather than initiate, this is why you should not be a Christian, this is why you should become a Ben-Noach, no. And in fact, all my shows are people calling live, why? Why don't they just give speeches? Because I'm curious about what people are asking and respond to that live, unscripted, and I find that if you answer people's questions in a thoughtful way, it it makes a very big difference, and also you go to Tanakh, you go to scriptures and you ask one simple question, what is God's opinion, what does Hashem think about that, like isn't that the most important thing, and then you go to scripture, and then you look it for yourself, and as you said, because these Christians really care about God, you know, if I was born into a Christian world, I don't know where I'd be they're
1: not playing it's not like a lot of these they're not playing about god they're serious about what they believe in and they're wholeheartedly devout and and you see a lot of fire coming from some of these people but they just didn't read they just didn't like go deeper into the text and i don't i don't understand you know sort of how it worked out that way but
2: I'll, i'll tell you something crazy and this will surprise our viewers the hardest christians to reach are liberal christians that's the truth when I am when told that there's a Jew who's in an Episcopalian church in St. John the Divine, that's going to be the hardest case possible. I, I, nothing meant badly here, but when I meet like a Hillary Clinton kind of Christian, she's a Methodist, <laughs> right. a liberal, right? She's a liberal, right? Those are the hardest people because it, they're not, it's the, the person who says to me, I believe in the Bible and I believe it's the word of God and I believe it's canon and I believe it's unfallible and inerrant that person is gonna come home. That person who to come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The liberal Christian, the person who doesn't take their Bible seriously, they're not gonna take me seriously because I'm only looking at scripture. So the liberal Christians I'm not saying they're not interested, but that's very, very tough. Now you're very, as a caveat, it's very unlikely to have this kind of conversation with a liberal Christians, because liberal Christians, you know, like the Presbyterian USA Church. Okay, that's a, a, a big denomination. Condoleezza Rice and she belonged. You know, her father was a pastor, and that they, they don't even they don't care. You know, they, all they care about is when's the next meeting coming up. So forget that. But it is the more they're Bible-thumping Christians, the more they care about the Word, and they know that the Hebrew Bible is the Word of God. Judaism and Christianity do not have a symmetrical relationship. You, the viewer, listen very carefully. We're not on the same playing field. Listen, Judaism could be true and Christianity falls. Christianity can't be true and Judaism falls. The foundation has to be Tanakh. You can't tell me you believe in Jesus because of what Paul says. We are muhzakim. I'm not trying to say oh, we're this or that. The church's claim is that the proof and truth of Christianity can be demonstrated from your Old Testament in quotation marks. Luke 24, 44, it's in the Torah, it's in the prophets, it's in the Psalms. The claim of the church is there are hundreds of messianic prophecies that can demonstrate that Jesus is your Messiah. And you who are or were in the messianic movement know I'm not making this up. Well, if that's the case, let's take a look. And then when we take a look at these supposed prophecies, what do we find? We don't find support for the for the church claim. We find scandals, passages have been altered. So the, the more devout a Christian is, the easier it is. To have a conversation, because as you said, Nissan, we have a common ground. We have a common text that we love, that we cherish, and the conversation will go very well. It's interesting because, as um, as time has gone on, there
1: has been a lot of um, attempts to not approach Christianity from the tr- traditional way, our mission missionary um, efforts from the traditional way. We've known we mentioned that the Messianic movement started, you know, back, I think, in the 60s. I think it was. Um, But today, you and I, you know, we've talked and, you know, I've tried to help as much as I can. Uh, But there's a lot of these covert missionaries who have been sneaking into synagogues, sneaking into communities who have made major efforts to. Try to, I, it, it's hard for me because I want to, I, I know. I know some of these, hevra. I know some of them very, very well. Some of them were my friends. Some of them were people that I knew very, very well. <clears throat> I can't say that all of them have it in their mind that they were actively trying to convert Jews, but there are a lot of them that are, you know, elk being one of them. That was a major, major story that broke, <clears throat> but there are the ones that actually are. Let's talk about these guys that are in this in-between stage where they're sneaking in, and they don't really have an effort in their mind to 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 convert. I don't know if you've encountered this. Or you and I haven't had this conversation in full, but I know that some of these guys who they sneak in, they don't have an effort. They they, they don't want to make an effort to convert Jews, but they want to uh, be Jewish. They believe that when 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 Jesus said. I think it was in in Matthew twenty something that the 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 Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. What they say you, you, to do? They twenty three, right? Yeah. So they go through all of these things and all these different passages. And the more and more they start learning about Judaism, they can't let the whole situation go. And 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 a lot like uh maybe the young lady who tried to challenge you <laughs> a few weeks ago, they start learning more about Judaism right. and they start to look at it. So they come into it, they start learning Kabbalah. They start learning and now they can rationalize these things outside of scripture. And they've already accepted Judaism as the, the ultimate authority. And then they come and they sneak in. They grow paious and beard and they come in and they and, and they're and they're and they're hanging out amongst the chaver, And they don't really intend to to do but they're sitting in with ideas that are heretical and and they have things like is that a problem is it not a problem do you hold them the same as you know there's some other groups amongst us who hold the rabbis as mashiach and different things like that or do you or do you look at it as something completely
2: different all right so let, let's talk about a very famous case michael l cohen his real name was michael elk he's not wasn't even jewish And I'm not going to go into the whole thing, how he managed to pull this off, but he managed to convince a Bezden in Philadelphia that he's Jewish, and then he got smicha from another group. Don't ask what happened. He comes here, and he's also performing mila, and he's claiming to be Jewish, and he's doing safras, which means he's a scribe, and the whole thing was a scam. I want you, the viewer, to know this is not a new phenomenon, but in fact, this goes back to the Christian Bible, this technique of, of... Portraying yourself to be something that you're not is advocated not just in the in the later part of the New Testament, but in the very earliest writings. Paul himself in First Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, 21, 22, Paul says, Let me tell you, boys and girls, gather around. Let me tell you how it's done. Let me tell you what I do. To the Jew, I become as a Jew, that I may gain the Jews. To those that are under the law, I become as one who is under the law, that I may gain those who are under the law. To those who are not in the law, I become as one who is not in the law, that I may gain them. I can become all things to all men, so by any means I may gain them. And in Philippians 1.18, he says, whether in pretense or in truth, the Gospels preach. So this is not the idea of what the Messianic movement is doing, of Mark Michael L. Cohen is doing. All this stuff, Peter was doing this kind of stuff, and Paul got really angry at him in Galatians in Galatians 2.11 when Peter said, when, when Paul said said that I told Peter to his face that he was a hypocrite for behaving one way around Jews and one way around Gentiles. There's an old, old Christian method. But there is a there is an element here that people need to understand about the phenomena. When people and missionaries, for instance, El Cohen was funded by Morningstar Ministries, a major league missionary, but there is a phenomena that if you don't know this, don't understand this, don't wrap your brain around this, you're not going to understand the problem that we're confronting. In virtually all cases, the person who's most successful in converting Jews to Christianity are Gentiles who are evangelical Christians and not professional missionaries. I am sure there are many of you watching the show right now who knows of somebody, a Jewish person, that got involved in one of these groups. If you ask that person, who was that first contact, it'll be someone who's just a plain guy, meets at the church, meets at a basketball court, whatever it is. It's always on the social level. It's nobody, no Jew become joins the church because they met someone in Jews for Jesus, handing out a track in the street. You've never heard it. It never happened, okay? So what El Cohen does, and it's not just him, as you mentioned, a whole band of them. Their role is not to sit around and just say, hi, uh, why don't you accept Yeshua? They'll do that on Christian television, which Michael L. Cohen did, because they have to raise money. So L. Cohen, while he's saying one thing here, he's going on Morningstar Ministries and talking about how you need to bring the Jewish people to know about Yeshua. But the key, the most important thing, listen like you've never listened in your life, the most important thing that Michael L. Cohen can do, Chosen People ministries, First Fruits of Zion, Friends of Israel, the most important thing they can do is not themselves, the pros who are on the staff, go out and convert Jews, because then they blow their cover. They never want to do that. What they do instead is they bring in volunteers, create a plausible deniability, and train Gentile evangelical Christians how to reach Jews, how to speak to the Jews, how to bring the gospel to the Jews, how to speak about Yeshua to the Jews, and that's what what people don't see. The whole Bunch of them, and there are more and more that are going to be exposed in the coming weeks. Big stuff that's going down. Big, huge stuff here in Israel. Mind blowing stuff. It's been, and you all know this. But the, the reason why people don't get this is people think that it's the Michael L. Cohn who actually converts people. No, that people think it's David Brickner of Jews for Jesus that's converting people. No, they don't convert anybody. They go into churches. They do their Passover Christ in the Passover programs in churches, teaching these nice Baptists, these nice uh, charismatic Christians how to effectively reach their Jewish neighbors, their Jewish friends, their physician, their attorney. And that's how it works. That's that's how the scam works. Now, the way they're exposed very frequently is no money for support for missionary activity in Israel comes from Israel. It's got to come from North America, a lot of it from South Korea some of it from Europe. It comes from abroad. There's hundreds of millions of dollars spent on Jewish evangelism, but how do you get your cut of the pie? You've got to preach about it. You've got to go on television and speak about it. You've got to put out videos saying this is what we're doing, so support what I'm doing so we can bring the gospel to Jews. And that's, bang, how they've been exposed. And we're going to continue exposing them. People have to know that element of how it goes down.
1: Right. I think my last question is, you know, because my my way is always to try to bring people to some type of... It's hard because on one part, I, I, I was involved in outreach. You know, I have, I have smicha always, say, a junior missionary card. I was involved in outreach. And now, you know, when Hashem took me and I, and I left the Christian world and I came to Yiddishkeit, I'm still involved in outreach. So I see that this has something to do with my neshama. has something to do with my soul. How do we get more, and I see you do these luncheons sometimes where you're speaking, and there's many people there, some even appear to be Christians, some are not. How do we get to the bottom of this dialogue? How do we get this dialogue to even get started on a grander scale? Because I feel like if people were able to really hash it out, and really talk, and and to be able to find these people, you know, do you feel like your YouTube is the best platform, or do you feel like there's a way to be able to go out and get more people to really actually have these conversations, and to challenge it if if you believe in something people ask me all the time you know cuz obviously i went i sat down with the christian bible i sat down with a few different versions of them because of the machlokes but i i went with a few different uh, versions of them sat with the quran the christian bible i was going 8 hours a day going between these texts looking for the truth. I wanted the Emma's. I wanted the truth. And I and I told God, I'm not leaving until I find the truth. I was fasting three days at a time and going through all these different things, trying to find the truth, really looking for it. Most people are not looking for God like that. They say, And I started to ask myself, why do I believe what I want to believe? So people always ask me, do you feel that it's important for you to search? I'm a person who search, So absolutely, I feel like I'm a person. I, I believe that person search only if they're going to do it with truth. Most people do not search with truth. They search they have a certain desire and the God they know about doesn't like the desire so then they move on they go and create another one are they Are they, They're they? so involved? I think this is what you were talking about with some of the, the liberal Christians or whatever. But they get so involved in the world and what society says is morally and ethically correct that they take from society and they color the Bible with the way that they see society. So that's the way that they go into their search. Like, you know, at this point, they can't be right. These parts of the Bible can't be right because they go against society. Then you have the last way of searching. And this last way, what I feel is which is more pure, and this was the journey that I went on, as that I'm looking for a truth that is is going to reach that place inside of me that is that feels like it's the it's the actual truth and it and it sounds true and that I can verify it to whatever degree I can. And when I find it, I'm willing to submit my whole entire life to that truth. I'm willing to give up everything for that truth. I don't care if it's this book, that book, this book, I'm gonna sit there and I'm a pound it. And for me that was going eight hours a day. A lot of people don't have that, so sort of you have to bring the conversation to them, bring it out to them to make them start to think because these are genuinely people that I feel like God can use on his army, he can use on his team. So my question is, how do we move forward? How do we get more people to have this conversation?
2: So right now, this is such a spectacular topic that people are very interested. YouTube and other electronic programs have transformed my work as it used to be public speaking, and also transformed your work in every way as an artist and everything. I mean, there's so many millions of people could watch. But I say this, I I remember speaking in Fairfax, Virginia. Fairfax is kind of a a bedroom community of America's capital. People work in Washington, but live in Fairfax. And met a fellow who works for the federal government. He's employed by the Secret Service of the United States. And Jewish fellow, belonged to a congregation there, fam- famous congregation, a lot of lawmakers there. And he works for the Secret Service, not protecting the president or his family. He protects the currency of the United States. In essence, what he does, this was the first mandate of the Secret Service. He trains agents, new recruits, some bright young men and women, um, how to detect counterfeit currency. And I thought, that is so Very interesting. Esau, you must have this amazing collection of counterfeit currency that that the service has already confiscated. And you have the new agent, like, studying the different kinds of counterfeit money, learning about it. and And he said, Rabbi, that's not the way we do it here. The way we train agents how to detect counterfeit currency is we show them real money real currency. I didn't know this. Real American currency is printed on a paper. There's no other paper like it in the world, and the U.S. government ensures that. There are shifting watermarks. There are fine line engravings. There are little fibers in the paper, schmutz in the paper. In George Washington's Shatel, there's all kinds of ingra- Don't ask what's going on. These agents learn everything there is to know about real money. Why? because you take an agent with that sort of training and you dare put a counterfeit in their hands, they will know it immediately. Wow. This is what I'm wow. saying to you, my dear brothers and sisters. Am I saying to you that, in, that we suddenly, sh- everybody should, we should start at every yeshiva in every place, we should start learning Matthew, Bahartha, we should know the entire the <laughs> entire book of Luke, by Ped, if you do the whole thing, apostles or the epistles of the apostles. That it- no, 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 listen. And I say this to the learn, Tanakh, the Torah of Moses and the Prophet, the Hebrew Bible. All you Christians, you believe that the Hebrew Bible is the Word of God, and let that take you wherever it can. If you know the Hebrew Bible, if you understand the Jewish scriptures in its original, then when anyone tries to put a counterfeit of in your hands, you will know it immediately. And my prayer is with you, the viewer, that you would consider this. Pray to Hashem for guidance. Go to Tanakh. Not, to, I prayed and the Lord laid it on my heart. Everyone's getting laid it on their own personal. That's not relevant. It's not your personal revelation. Because with you laying it on the heart, you know, Hare Krishna can walk in the door. And what are you going to do? Shave your head up and move to India? Forget that. Go to the Torah, to the holy prophets of Israel, and... And that will take you to the God of Israel. Anyways, that was that's, that's what amazing. I would do. Oh yeah,
1: Rabbi, uh, amazing. We could go on and on and on and on. I appreciate you so much uh, making time for this and uh, and uh, giving me the opportunity to ask you all my questions. And and I, I we got like I said, this is the beginning of many. And Hashem should give you a brach on all of your work. You should be successful beyond and beyond the whole. You t- it should turn into a whole station and a whole building and a high rise of you know, your successes. Bezat Hashem thank and many God. Yidden and Jews will find themselves back home. And all those righteous gam that are there, that are trapped in that place, that really want to find their, their place amongst the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, will be able to do so. Bezat Hashem. Before the coming of Mashiach. Coming home. Bezat Hashem.
2: Amen. 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 Yes, Hashem should bless you and continue to guide you and thank you.
1: Oh, man. Thank you so much. I mean, should I even say anything about, you know, this conversation? Rabbi is, uh, he does this. It's like a work of art to be able to combat and to be so well versed. And not only Tanakh, not only Jewish law, not only, you know, Midrashim and and, and Gemara, he's well-versed even in the Christian Bible. He knows these things in and out. He studies these things, and it's not something for him where he takes it lightly. He literally feels, and I agree with him from what I can see, that this is the reason why Hashem put His neshama in the world. This is the reason why. So he's been nothing short of amazing. This conversation, I hope, is eye-opening again. Like I said in the beginning, was never my goal to offend people. Uh, I really honestly wanted to have this conversation because there's a lot of information here that may have not even been available to people if they never known. So, you know, it is what it is. Like I said, if it's hot, hopefully nobody's feelings got hurt. But it just is what it is. I encourage everybody to look further to Rabbi Tovia Singer's either uh, to his, his, his audio things that he has. He's a few different podcasts. He's a guest on. He doesn't have his own podcast. But he definitely has his own YouTube page where he's uploading three, four videos a week uh of new content and always trying to put something up that's fresh and brand new and i mean you could sit there for hours and and watch his videos and see everything that he's doing so it's amazing uh to be able to have that conversation with him and to be able to hash all these things out and honestly i could have went for more hours with him because i always sit feel like i'm every time i'm talking to him i'm sitting in the chair you know learning learning from a rebbe. so he's, it's so amazing um and with that you know i'd love to always leave you all with the song and so my song but this week is going to be Eight Flames. I think it's very, very appropriate. It is a Hanukkah song, but it is a song that uh, I feel like is very, very appropriate after this conversation. And one of my favorite songs to perform even, you know, throughout the year, even though it's not Hanukkah. And I think that it's very, very telling of the Jewish plight and, and fighting against those who wish to see our destruction and see our demise. Everybody, thank you. And until next time, only go from strength to strength be strengthened. Peace.
0: Whenever we down, he can lift us up. Ain't a difficulty, too difficult for us. If only we would trust and keep our heads up. The sky we can touch, yeah. But I feel like I'm already gone. i living the weight on my own. I feel like I lost my way home. I'm feeling so out of my zone. Yeah, and when it's dark out I can not see. Yeah, so can you make a life for me? It's hard. From Egypt to Babylon, the Holocaust. Inquisition would pivot us to the pogroms. Yeah, from the Greeks and now in Rome. Yeah, but we fight back to light that fire. They got a problem, cause this Neshama won't expire. We moving on. We show the whole entire world no fear in us. And so we make a flame for this miracle make it eight days, eight nights, and we call it eight flames, eight nights. We light a flame for the summer cold. We light a flame for the summer cold. So we make it eight days, eight nights, and we can call it eight flames, eight nights. And we light a flame for the summer cold. And we light a flame for the summer. Cold. I'm standing up, but I can't hold myself I know I need the help of someone else I am my brother's keeper I can use my hand to be my brother's keeper We gon' fly away Not in a million years Get six million tears Be ignored still These are arms of steel King David's shield Operation Moses, Ethiopian Trojan He gave the mighty to the weak The many to the few In a minute it was through Even in the dark we light it through And now I give my light to you But we fight back to light that fire They got a problem Cause this Neshama won't expire We moving on We show the whole entire world no fear in us And so we make a flame for this miracle So we make it eight days, eight nights And we call it eight
1: Thank you so much for listening to The Deal with me, Nisim Black. It's a production of The Joshua Network. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. Our producer is Delot Brownstein. Please follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at The Deal with NB. And subscribe and rate the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your podcast content. Please share this with your friends so that they can get this raw and riveting stuff from me, yours truly, God's man. We light a
0: flame for Eight days, eight days and we can call it eight flames, eight lights, and we light a flame for this miracle. And we light a flame.